Welcome to Star Watcher Podcast, where we explore startup universe, innovations, startups, and investors. Today, my guest is Andre Retrat, partner at Early Bird Venture Capital and founder of Data Driven VC Newsletter. If you are listening to this podcast and haven't signed up already, you probably should do it. Andre is one of the pioneers in data-driven investing approach, have done academic research in the field, and also he's a hands-on practitioner. In our conversation, we talk about his academic journey, augmented VC approach, and where does gut feel fits in. VC founder fit and how data is changing way both sides find each other. And in conclusion, Andre gives some very practical tips for those who want to start their data-driven VC journey. Now over to the podcast. Hello, Andre. Hey, Ernest. Nice to have you over. Been looking forward to uh, uh, have a chat with you. Thanks a lot for having me. Really excited for this conversation. Yeah, so let's kick off with your uh, a bit to get to know you with the background. You are an engineer. You have a PhD degree, right? And uh, yeah. now you are now you are into the VC world. How how it how it happened? Tell a bit. It's actually probably probably to most VCs out there not such a linear path. So as you said, uh, I started out as an engineer. I studied me mechatronics engineering, which is a mix of mechanical, electrical, and computer science, and then actually focused on computer science. In parallel to that, started working for one of the largest steel players. So started in a corporate actually on the shop floor, the production plant, doing um, initially process automation, so coding C, C++, which was very useful for the beginning to see actually like hands-on development um, on the machine level. And then gradually transitioned into more predictive maintenance, anomaly detection, oscillation measurement. And this is how I eventually got into data science. Um, so that was like the first, let's say, bit more than five years of my professional life in the corporate, um, where I've seen a lot, learned a lot, but uh, for different reasons, also figured that corporate um, is not where I saw my future, so decided to go back to university, that then actually a non-consecutive degree. So initially, I wanted to do an MBA, couldn't afford it back then, uh, didn't know about scholarships whatsoever, and then actually found a super nice degree uh, at here Munich, which was a master's in management. So it's actually uh, similar to an MBA, but a two-year program. And as part of this two-year program, also spent some time in the US and uh, in the UK, and then by accident, actually heard about VC. Um, so that was like the the beginning uh, of, the, of the transition. Cool. And... And degree? How you got the degree? Yeah, it's, it's actually, it's, it's, it's fun. So uh, while, while I was doing a road trip with a friend in the US, like I never heard about VC. It's just like two letters, uh, part of PE, similarly two letters. But uh, I just found it, it might be actually quite interesting as an engineer with a broader interest in businesses to work in the intersection. So um, I just actually did a bit of research, uh, just Googled like best VCs in, in Germany, in Europe, and so on, and eventually ended up uh, finding Early Bird, where the founders also had an engineering degree, so quite some similarity bias. And uh, yeah, with that, actually started with an internship, and I was actually quite, quite split in my perspective, I'd say. 
Uh, on one hand side, I was really excited about the talent density within the team, but also within the entrepreneurs across the portfolio, our LPs. So I've never worked in such an environment before. And it was like really incredible, super steep learning curve. On the other hand side, however, I was really surprised how manual, inefficient, also partially ineffective, most of the workflows were in VCs. And initially I thought it probably about early bird. Early bird today is a 26 year old uh, firm out of Europe. And I thought it's it's probably because the firm has such a longstanding history that some of the processes are just outdated. And surprisingly, when I started speaking to other VCs, I actually learned that early bird was back then already, like in 2016, one of the most advanced firms having already a CRM system, collecting data in a structured way, having processes where we collect data along the investment process and so on. But I was just like, how, how is it possible that those who back the most disruptive, most visionary founders out there still work themselves like the industry started mostly in the 1940s and 50s? So for me, it just like really didn't make sense how such highly talented people actually spent most of their time doing monkey work, collecting data, structuring data, doing like, like very dumb data collection, due diligence jobs before they eventually end up in a situation where they can make an informed decision. And this just didn't make sense for me. So as part of this two-year program um, in Germany, you need to do a six-month final thesis. So I did a final uh, thesis in the UK, uh, really focused on this topic. So the first part of this topic was how can we collect unstructured data? And now as I was in the UK, I also looked for the public register, which is company's house. Company's house back then, uh, mostly stored the information and partly handwritten uh, PDFs. So I started collecting the data, building a data pipeline. So with some um, OCR, where we extracted the information, then processed the data in a structured way, lots of uh, deterministic data cleaning uh, back then, and then put it into a knowledge graph. So it was actually the first time I ever worked with knowledge graphs and put both um, the companies including their founders but also the investors into a knowledge graph with two different node types and then try to um, try to uh, yeah, follow these these uh, social graphs over time to figure out what are the relationships in this network so essentially uh, who are the most important investors uh, what is their relation is um, other different kind of effect like herding and so on and I got really excited about it seeing all of the different options out there which eventually then also led to me thinking about a PhD. So I was in conversations, uh, got different offers for PhD programs in US and UK and Germany. But at the same time, already knew based on my research time that I will likely not stand in, stay in academia uh, for different reasons. Uh, but I just really knew I want to become a VC investor, but I also want to change the way how VC itself works. So I found a nice way of starting a PhD program um, at Technical University Munich, um, at the same time in collaboration with a professor I also did my thesis with in the UK. And um, in parallel to that, actually joined Early Bird um, almost six years ago. So I did quite a bit in, in, in parallel because uh, there was quite a big overlap between what I've done in my PhD, which was on the topic of machine learning and the value of data and venture capital, and early bird mostly investing into AI, data, dev tool companies. So I did that for a couple of years then, mostly spending time on the investment side. And once my PhD was finished, I actually took my initial concept, my MVPs that I built, and tried to advance them within early bird. So over weekends and at night, 
Um, I started to build an MVP for data collection, essentially building different kind of data pipelines and then thinking about how can we make the data actionable before then in 2020, we started hiring the first full-time engineer in our team, which by now has become an engineering team of eight people who build our data-driven sourcing and screening platform, but also go beyond in the value creation. So that's like a bit more the extensive story behind <laughs> it. Uh, as I said in the beginning, it's, it's not that linear. But I think I always try to combine my more analytical, methodological perspective as an engineer with also what I'm really excited about, the VC world and backing the most uh, visionary founders out there. Ah, that's the best. That's the best when you are... the. What happens with those theses sometimes is that it's very theoretical and wishful thinking. Or the people who are on the practical side, they sometimes don't have the, the bigger... They are not forced to think bigger, wider, what could be the implications. They just do stuff. With It seems that you had both. You had the practical side and the big, big uh, theoretical thinking behind. Yeah, it's actually quite interesting. If you look in, into academia, like the hardcore uh, researchers out there who publish uh, and really focus on citations and so on, those are oftentimes people who have groundbreaking, disruptive papers out there. But in reality, very few practitioners know about these research findings. So for me, it was always clear, look, if I do research, I want to have, like, I want to create research that has practical implications. So that is actually heard and that is implemented and that really changes something right away. So typically in academia, very long lead times, at least in the past, that has changed obviously a lot now uh, with all of the AI uh, kind of papers uh, out there. But uh, I guess it was mostly true for uh, for the diversity of academic subjects. And I think that was really interesting for me of combining essentially all of the uh, data science, machine learning um, approaches uh, with, on the other hand side, VC investing, where also the field uh, just started to create more relevant research. And uh, I guess there were very few researchers out there, firstly, combining these two different areas. And secondly, also with their own perspective, both from academia, but at the same time, from a practitioner's point of view. Like most researchers in this space are 100% researchers or the people who are uh, practitioners are 100% practitioners. And I think it was a very unique positioning for me to get both access to more than 25 years of experience within early bird, but at the same time to a strong academic uh, network. Yeah. So uh, I like you touched on uh, when you joined early birds and you thought why it's so inefficient. And I think that's one of the things across, as you mentioned, it's across VC industry, at least it has been. What do you think, what are the reasons? Is it uh, lack of tech people, lack of data information, or is it just a culture? I think for like in my perspective, it's clearly the latter, but also my perspective has changed a lot. So when I, when I started out initially speaking to different VCs, uh, there were multifold arguments on why VC is not more data driven. So people said, number one, it is actually in early stage investing very qualitative data. So with qualitative data, it's difficult to quantify, it's difficult to actually make sense of it in a structured way and big sample sizes and so on. That's number one. Number two, VC is the sub-industry of private equity. And as private equity already says, it's mostly private data. So it's very difficult mm. to come by this data at large scale. And this is different to, for example, if you look at another segment of the financial industry, which is, for example, the hedge fund industry. 
hedge funds mostly trade on publicly available data. So that can be anything, but this is, this is uh, broadly available also at high frequency. So this was the second major difference. But then also the third one, and this is only something I learned over time, like VCs are very hesitant and they are proud of their biases. So there is diversity of biases, like recency bias, similarity bias, and all of this. But VCs actually believe that their gut feeling eventually led to historically great decisions. And this is also something they want to maintain. So initially, I thought it was more about the data availability, uh, like private, but also qualitative. But then over time, I learned it's actually more about specifically from the very senior people that they are proud and they want to maintain partially their biases. So this being said, I also learned that VC is a very non-inclusive industry. So most of the founders they, uh, who got founded um, new VCs either directly already or through a mutual mm. friend or something. So it's based on very tight-knit networks. And it was very difficult for someone, for example, who grew up in a rural countryside, did not go to a target university to actually get access to VC funding. <laughs> and I think that that was a big learning for me personally, because I strongly believe that talent is distributed equally, equally across the globe, but capital is actually not. And I think we need to change something about this. And this mm. was also one of the major drivers why I actually started out on this journey. So to summarize, basically data-driven approach allows you to go broader geographically because now you don't depend on the personal network. Exactly. I think, uh, number one, there is no reason why only those people in our closer networks from target universities should have the biggest visions and should have the best resources and capabilities. So I think there is no reason for that. Um, yes, there are, there are, of course, uh, selection biases so that at some target universities, the talent density is higher, vision, vision, the ambitions are probably higher at some other universities, but I think there are always outliers and our job is just to find these outliers. So VC job is not to go on the averages and only bet on the target universities and back whoever founder comes out of it. But our job is really to find these outliers. And for me, it's both, uh, geographic expansion away from these central hubs. So in the US, obviously, we have very few hubs historically, now also expanding a bit. But Europe historically has been very fragmented across different hubs like London, Berlin, Munich, Paris, and so on. And I think with these data-driven approaches, we can now even expand it further so we can identify founders in the very rural countryside who might not, as I said, have gone to one of the target universities or who might not already know other founders or the VC ecosystem, but we should still be in a position to identify them if they have promising business, but also have the ambition to really build a disruptive category leading company. So that, that we defined like that could be the, the stage, which was previously now, uh, you have been also one of the initiators for data-driven venture capital uh, movement. Where do you see where we are with that? In short, uh, day zero, I'd say. <laughs> so, I've, I've, I've been in the space for quite a while. And uh, back then I looked for different, uh, both researchers out there, and there, there are like two or three people uh, who came to mind and who I could find back then. I think it, it has changed a bit, but it's still at very early days. So it's like mostly bit. like 
exactly it's it's mostly uh, i don't know some some uh, master thesis or some phds writing one or two papers on the topic but very few let's say more senior researchers who continue to focus all of their efforts on the space but it's it's evolving so i'm very positive about that and at the same time i think uh, there was already i call it the big data wave in VC before. So there were some funds um, who started to become more data-driven but more than 10 years ago. So they started all of the data collection and so on, had some exploration projects, but most of them actually dropped it a few years later. So it was partially because they couldn't find the right, right talent or sustain the right talent. It was partially because the data and also the model capability was not there as it is today. But it was mostly, and I think that's 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 the main reason, a cultural problem that VCs did not see a reason to continuously increase their efforts and also budgets, like it's part of the management fee that then goes into into this project. And it's always a substitution question, like should I hire one more engineer or one more associate? The associate will likely deliver results right away. So she will go to an event tomorrow, we'll meet the next entrepreneur, it's the next lead, uh, we'll work on the due diligence and so on. But these engineering efforts to build these data-driven platforms just have longer lead time. So you will only know like one or few years down the road if and how impactful um, these, these ambitions were. And I think the mix of these, these factors actually led to most VCs dropping it back then. And if I speak about most VCs, like the sample size is probably a few tens of them globally who have ever worked in this space. So I think when, when I started out uh, on, this, on this project in 2016, it was actually very, very few VCs and those who have done something before were a bit more skeptical. And I think it, it then gradually and very slowly started. And for me, the biggest problem was that there was like nobody out there who I could talk to. So it was just like <laughs> me by myself. And I've heard about few VCs out there who did something in a space, but reaching out to them, they were like super secretive. So I was not sure if it was mostly marketing, like window dressing, like we tell a nice story or if it was actually a secret sauce that nobody would speak about. So I started building these bilateral relationships with different people. And over time, I just said, okay, look, we, we all share the same problems. Nobody is actually talking about it. So I actually sat down and decided to start writing. So I've, I've enjoyed writing in the past quite a bit. So I started writing initially, like obviously these PhD papers, then on Medium quite a bit. And I just saw that there is big and also rising interest. So I sat down, started this newsletter, Data Dream VC last year, and I just saw it is exploding in terms of interest, but not also not only interest in terms of the readers, the likes, whatever, but really in terms of the feedback. So for me, it was just very clear. There's so much interest and it's really an underserved market. And as I've shown, and that's the last data point I want to mention to this question in, in the Data Dream VC landscape 2023, that there are 84% of VC funds out there who want to increase their efforts of leveraging data and AI. But only 1% of VC funds actually do have their internal ambitions and engineering teams to do it. And I think this discrepancy explains a lot on what is the current state. And this is what I said. I think it's still day zero. We are just starting out. Yeah, day zero. There is a, a will to go, but uh, no understanding how exactly to do that. So at least the will is there. 
hundred percent. At least for most, not for all yet. But uh, I think uh, even even the last uh, will be convinced in the next uh, few months or years, or they will die. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, everyone is waiting for uh, that big success to really jump on the bandwagon. Like, hey, this unicorn was found purely like. Someone was sitting in Barcelona and found someone in Lithuania just by algorithmic uh, approach. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you already mentioned data-driven landscape report uh, you have put together. Uh, what are the main insights you had from there? So one was that uh, there's there's a lot of interest in direction. What else? I think a bit of context to, to the study. So with this growing community, I've just seen that there are many like-minded people. So I just uh, started end of last year to send out a few surveys to people I knew. And I saw that there was big interest. They shared it with others. And then eventually we ended up collecting a bit more than 250 uh, responses on the survey. And uh, from these 250 responses, we got several nominations in terms of those are the leading VCs out there. So we put down different criteria, collected a lot, a lot of external uh, data on these VCs, got in touch with all of the VCs, collected proprietary data. And with that, we uh, put together a list of the leading data-driven VCs. So we put out different criteria, like you need to have at least one internal full-time person focusing on these projects and so on. So there are multiple criteria, which are, which are all in, in the... Um, in the uh, report. And um, from that, we looked at 151 leading VCs. And at the same time, we looked at the people behind. So who are the people driving this change? And we put together a list of the 65 thought leaders in data-driven VC. And from that, actually, we collected lots of responses and tried to figure out, okay, what is, what is the current state? So really your question, where are we today? And uh, number one, I already mentioned that is the big discrepancy between the ambitions and the actual status. Number two, we looked at the VC value chain. So if I speak about the VC value chain, I do have a framework in mind, which on the investment process side starts with the sourcing, then the screening, then the due diligence. Then obviously we do have the closing. Then we have the, the post-closing portfolio value creation, which also includes follow-on rounds, hiring, um, it includes introductions to customers and so on. And then eventually we do have an exit. And there are different studies out there showing that about two thirds of the VC value creation is in the sourcing and screening. So venture capital is a finding and picking the winner's game. And with our, with our study, we could actually show that majority of the VCs start with the data-driven efforts on the sourcing and screening stages, which is again, like super nice because we see from the research side, that they um, find that the majority of value is created there. And also then on the practitioner side, we find that most VCs actually start in these stages. So there is a great overlap in terms of the majority of the value creation and also where the data-driven approaches start. So the third point that we found is also that actually uh, newer firms benefit a lot from greenfield situations. So for them, just setting up these, uh, these uh, tool stack it's easier to start with novel tools. So I, I, let's call them data-driven native tools, um, build their internal tools across the stack, um, focus on, on a different kind of AI, like generative AI incorporated products and a lot more. Whereas older firms typically do have established processes and they do have an established tool stack, which might be a bit more outdated or not. 
but uh, it is significantly more difficult to number one shift from existing processes and also tool stack to newer ones and number two it's the cultural shift because it's very very difficult to also change the behavior of professionals that have worked in a specific tech for whatever five ten years or something versus if you just assemble a new firm you can research the whole landscape what are the best tools what are the best processes out there and then just start it and uh, we could show with our data that the adoption rate is significantly faster for newer firms than for more established firms and then i think the last interesting one and there are obviously way more but the last interesting one i want to mention is a bit more about the people side so we see that the data-driven vc thought leaders actually have twice more STEM backgrounds than their VC investment professional counterparts. And also they have three times more PhDs and three times less MBAs than their VC average investor counterparts. So I think that is very interesting because you see that these ambitions are mostly driven by more technical people who also bring the background to the table to understand both worlds, both the engineering, data science, computer science world, but at the same time, the investment world, because I think it's very important to bridge both. You need to understand the processes. You need to understand what it takes to do a great investment. You need to understand what it takes to convince a founder, because only then you will be in a position to build proper tool set to support these processes and really make them better. Yeah, one of the... <clears throat> That understanding part is actually really something which goes through the previous episodes. Uh, when I have spoken with uh, uh, Amir, Mike, and Pietro about thesis, like understanding what exactly we are looking for as a VC firm, where, as we spoke before, the, the biases, basically it's, yeah, I will figure it out on the spot. But then when you ask the partners, what exactly are the companies we are investing in and can you describe it? That might be pretty hard. Uh, yeah, that's something where I have seen. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. And I think if you have a partnership of five partners and ask them what they are looking for an in investment, you will get five different answers. Um, yes, there is a common denominator. And I think that's very important for every partnership that you have this common denominator, which are mostly, I call them the hard criteria. So like which geography are you looking for? Which stage are you looking for? So for example, for early bird, it would be Europe. Stage-wise, we look for pre-seed seed series A companies. We would invest initial tickets between one to 10 million from our early stage fund. So if like those answers would be 100% in line if you ask the partnership all across. But then if you ask for specifics, it already starts to to be like to, to differentiate because if you ask our fintech partners, for example, they would say, yeah, we are looking like the first they would say we're looking for founders in the fintech, the intertech space. If you would ask me, I would say, yeah, we're looking for founders in the enterprise software space, dev data, everything in the AI stack, super interesting. So you will start getting grand, like slightly different answers. Of course, my partners would also say then enterprise software is a second or third or something, but you will see different answers. And then the deeper you go into that, you will also see different answers on the soft factors. So which kind of founders are you looking for? Because I'm personally biased. So if you would you would say, I don't know, it's a founder from TU Munich or Cambridge or wherever, like I would be super excited because I have this similarity bias already. If you would ask my partners, they would might become more excited about other universities. 
And then if you speak about like more soft factors, what does it take to actually become successful? Some might look for serial entrepreneurs because I don't know, it might be a recency bias. They had a recent success story where there was a serial entrepreneur who built a nice company and they might have that in mind looking exactly for this. So this is really what I mean with these biases because these biases for every investor are built on very small sample sizes. Like very few investors, early stage investors have seen firsthand hundred success cases that became multi-billion dollar companies. Like I, I cannot imagine there is someone out there like that. And that's really the problem because you only look at a very, very limited sub sample of the wider universe. And why not you look at the wider universe, try to identify patterns across successful companies and try to learn from these patterns and match them with our gut feeling. So gut feeling versus data-driven approach. You at early bird, probably you also have some scoring algorithm, something which comes back and says, Hey, Andre, have a look at this one. This is like point eight. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and uh, how how you how you how you work with that? Because sometimes I, I like to call this uh, the magical ability for the partners to bend reality when where they basically just say, Well, you know, I just like the founder. <laughs> It's actually that's it, it, like it's a super nice framing. And I think it's really on spot. So what I called it back then, uh, and I this term throughout my PhD studies, was an augmented VC approach. So I think there is a spectrum of on the one hand side we have the traditional VC business like it was done for the past 60, 70 years, which is gut feeling, human networks, mostly inbound. So founders reaching out to the VCs. Yes, it starts to become also for the traditional models a bit more proactive and outbound. But let's assume this is one side of the spectrum, the very old school model. On the other side of the spectrum, we have funds that say, look, founder, provide me with the data. I will calculate a score based on this data, do benchmarking whatsoever, and we'll provide you with a clear investment decision within the next 24 hours. So there are funds out there. Um, I'm personally a bit skeptical on that, but let's assume this is the spectrum. And I think the augmented VC approach sits right in the middle. And what do I understand as an augmented VC approach? For me, it is let machines do what machines can do best. And for me, that's top of funnel. So getting comprehensive coverage, identifying every company as early as possible. So we won't miss out on an opportunity anymore. That's the goal. And I think machines can do that way better than humans, like collecting and structuring and processing data, machines can just do better than humans. Then secondly, let's assume we have a couple of millions of opportunities in the funnel. The problem is we have very limited resources in terms of our investment team. So we cannot look at the million opportunities. We can also, like, also we can't look at 100,000 opportunities. So let's assume we have an investment team of whatever 10 people. We might be able to like properly assess, let's say, 5,000 opportunities per year. So we need to narrow down the funnel from a few millions to a few thousand. And this process, obviously, is very difficult to do on a human level. So let machines do that. And this is where statistical approaches come in. And also these statistical approaches can be advanced through feedback. So we can have processes where we collect feedback from the investment professionals, like we recommend a company. Investment professional might not like the company, just reject the company right away and the system might learn and improve. So this is also where the machine learning component comes into the screening approach. But once this is done, we provide a score to the investment professionals 
and provide actionable data. So all of the data that we have collected, uh, it's a single source of truth. We will help the investment professionals to prepare the assessment and also their introductory meeting with the founders so that they can cut down the time that they need for preparation. So for example, what does the competitive landscape look like? We can automatically calculate. So we scrape all of the data. We uh, build different vectors uh, with these data, and then we compare the closeness or similarity of these vectors. So essentially based on description, we look for semantic comparison and find competitors. So we present these competitors to the investment team. So you can already assess, okay, how much money got raised by whom, uh, how well-funded are the competitors, how similar is it, what are they doing different, and so on. So once you get into the introduction meeting, you're already well-prepared, even though it might not be the most familiar area to you. So the idea is really to then enable our investment professionals to just get up to speed on an opportunity as fast as possible to not lose time. So this is then where the transition comes in. So we have achieve comprehensive coverage. We have narrowed down the funnel and we enable our investment professionals with actionable data to actually start assessing an opportunity and getting into a conversation. But this is really at the moment at least where I think the handover comes to the human component because then you need to A, start understanding and building a relationship to the founder, but B, you also need to start convincing the founder because with a purely data-driven approach, yes, you can say, look, based on the data, we want to invest, it's an attractive opportunity and you can filter out these opportunities, rank them, do whatever, but eventually you also need to convince the founders. So it's not only about the sourcing, screening, whatsoever, it's also secondly, and that's very like equally important at least, it's the access component. So you need to convince the founder to actually take your money. And this is specifically important if you have a proposition as a VC, as lead investor or co-lead. It's a bit easier as a follower, but as a lead or co-lead for competitive opportunities, this is where the human component comes in. Because eventually, and this is the feedback uh, I've gotten through multiple conversations, founders do not want to work with an algorithm. Most founders want valuable board members and people who bring and open up their networks, for example. So this is what I understand, and I, I, I could continue on that on portfolio value creation, how you uh, how you have an augmented approach in the in the uh, due diligence process, and so on. But I think with the, with this with this concept of augmented VC, we can combine both strengths and just become a more powerful and hopefully also more successful VC once we look at performance. Yeah, that uh, really resonates uh, with the recent conversation I had with one VC who 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 also said that he has managed to found an interesting deal uh, with um, screening and algorithms. And then it's, okay, but now how I got in, get into the deal? Uh, now that that's an interesting, uh, and that's where the human factor actually comes into the play. And by the way, you, you mentioned in your previous question, um, also there are sometimes you see the and say, yes, the data tells X, but I just like the founder. And I think there needs to be room for that because Eventually, all of these data-driven models, data-driven approaches are mostly focused on, on uh, averages. So most of the statistical approaches are focused on averages, yet we see returns are driven by a power law distribution. So we have this Pareto distribution, 80-20, with a higher alpha coefficient here. So it's like whatever, 5% of the portfolio eventually return 95% of the returns. So VCs all know it's about improving the false negatives 
So we should not say no to an opportunity that will eventually become the big outlier. We need to improve our hit rates for these outliers. And doing that, we also know it's sometimes these, these uh, very unobvious cases. And it might be just the gut feeling of one partner who feels there is something, there is something in the founder that I really like that the data might not tell today, but I, I just feel that there is this relation. And we also need to have room in a partnership to also trust this gut feeling, even though the data might not be as obvious. So for me, these data-driven approaches are more like a directional approach, showing the VCs where to spend time and what, given all of the data that, that the systems have collected, has a high likelihood. But eventually, it's also on the humans to make a decision, like, do you actually want yeah. to work with the founder and so on? Yeah, I... I, I... I agree 100% about uh, your augmented uh, augmented VC approach. Uh, yeah, if uh, listeners haven't uh, read the article, it will be in the show notes. I will add it. So yeah, um, so uh, now we have 2022 November and coming. And uh, voila, OpenAI releases uh, ChatGPT. How 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 it uh, was perceived that uh, early bird and what was your experience? Yeah, it was it was interesting, but to be honest, not too surprising. So if like for people who have followed the whole data space for a longer time, we've seen big data, we've seen different approaches. Then I think uh, we had these these LSTM models and so on. So there were different kind of approaches of doing context understanding in the past. But I think then one very disruptive paper, the attention is all you need paper 2017, was just very interesting to see what happens if you increase the size of these models in terms of the parameters, how powerful they suddenly become. So that was interesting. And that was like for the, for the first time I ever heard about it was uh, the times of GPT-2. And then uh, also uh, signed up back then for GPT-3, for the beta test and so on. And that was, if I'm not mistaken, something like 2020, 2021, where it was, just became very clear how powerful um, this has become. At the same time, at Early Bird, we have also, we have done multiple investments in the space. So we invested in federated machine learning, synthetic data, companies all across. And then in 2020, um, we internally also sat down and mapped the whole space of, uh, let's say, GPT-3-like companies. And there were actually very few. And thankfully, funny enough, also through our data-driven sourcing platform, um, Eagle Eye is, 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 is uh, how we call it internally. We actually uh, spotted a company back then um, called Aleph iPhone. So uh, we started uh, building a relationship to the founder. And then we are thankful to, in 2021, also lead their Series A of 23 million um, together with uh, some befriended funds. And Aleph Alpha nowadays um, has become probably one of the most uh, competitive and uh, by now also most promising companies in the large language model space. So they have built models that are performance-wise competitive with all of the OpenAI models um, and other models like uh, like uh, from Meta and so on. But at the same time, they have never focused on the mid and long tail of the users or prosumers, but they have focused a lot on um, enterprise customers. So for these enterprise customers, from day one, they have focused on trustworthiness, explainability, traceability of data, and so on. So 
we started doing this investment uh, in summer 2021. And throughout this time, obviously also in close interaction with them, we have followed the space quite closely. And what just became clear is that back then you still needed to do lots of education. So to tell people why this is different to all of the previous AI, let's say waves and hypes uh, that were out there. And it just uh, was surprising. So all of Alpha has also built uh, conversational chatbots. There were different kind of chatbots out there who were still built on different technology. But the main surprise was actually not the power of what you can actually do with these large language models. For me, it was more of the democratization through the chat interface. So ChatGPT that was launched in November, what you're just referring to, is essentially just an interface that provides broad adoption for also non-developers. So you don't need to do prompt engineering anymore, but you do prompt engineering via a chat interface. And I think this essentially interface has led to widespread adoption of these new, this new technology. And that came both as a surprise to all of us, but I think even, and uh, I, ju I just attended a, a speech of Sam Altman recently, he even said that they within, within OpenAI got surprised by the widespread adoption. And I think nobody has expected that. For me, it was just, uh, we, we finally could close the gap between the foundation that was out there and the perception, because I think this time it was the wrong way around. Well, in the past, it was mostly the other way, but also the wrong way around. So in the past, uh, fundamentals were not there, but the hype was significantly higher. This time, let's say 2020, 2021, 20, majority of 2022, it was actually fundamentals were there, but the awareness was not there. And I think now um, this, this has equaled out. Yeah, I think uh, Sam Altman said that they had uh, ChatGPT on the shelf for six months or so, and they were waiting that someone is going to build something like that. Uh, but I guess uh, uh, back to your point about uh, prompt engineering, well, chat interface is just super fast feedback loop. Try that, try it out and just like, and then you're like, wow, magic. <laughs> you're right. So, but uh, back to the, how, how you, do you use uh, open AI at early birds, let's say in production? <laughs> Uh, yes, we do. Yes, we do. Uh, we use multiple models. So um, as said through our investment in Aleph Alpha, we actually started thinking about uh, the sensitivity of our data quite early. So we've been collecting lots of uh, data really at scale um, about multiple companies, also in the private sector through interactions and so on. And we just thought about if we provide this data to a company via an API, what actually happens to our data? And I think some company have learned it the hard way if they just put sensitive data into the OpenAI API, at least in the past, it was just used for, for them to continue training and suddenly your sensitive data appears outside. So that happens back then, like with Copilot initially, when you could suddenly uh, prompt different keys and you could find actual keys out there, uh, which were based on private uh, coding, um, uh, private coding repositories. And then at the same time, this also happens for some enterprise clients. So I think uh, we've been quite sensitive about that before. And we started uh, incorporating um, Aleph Alpha models. So Aleph Alpha pre-trains these models, provides them, and then you can fine-tune fine -tune them with the data to actually run on your own database. So we've been doing that for quite a while. 
at the same time, uh, I think open AI is quite strong in terms of more like a broader, more generic understanding. And through different kind of workarounds, you could also run these models on very recent up-to-date data. So what we've done is, um, based on our data-driven sourcing platform, we integrated Aleph Alpha first, and then on like Aleph Alpha mostly to run on our own existing data. And then secondly, we complemented that with OpenAI models, so GPT 3.5, for example, to run on publicly available data. And then we have a deterministic mm. model internally that decides like how to balance the data between our proprietary internal data with the Aleph Alpha model, and then also the publicly available data with the OpenAI model. So this is something, and we have, um, of course, at one point decided internally to build our own front end. So we have built our web application, as I said before, called Eagle Eye. And within Eagle Eye, uh, we do have a chat interface where our investment professionals actually can use it and these models run in the background. So this is one application. Um, we use it also for similarity comparison. So doing similarity uh, mapping is actually in the past has been quite a difficult uh, task. And uh, I know many, many data scientists, including our team and Kearney, we have spent significant time on that. But now with these large language models and vector databases, it became significantly easier to actually look for similar companies. So we have also incorporated large language models for similarity analysis. That's another example. And I could name multiple more. So yes, we do have it. We have done the exploration not only for the last six months, we have done it for years and we have incorporated it in our platform and it's actually live can be used by, by investment professionals. So what's your take on, <clears throat> I actually like, really like uh, how you already mapped it out, uh, the, the problems and potential concerns with uh, large language models. But then again, there are also some gains because you don't have in your pocket 100 million to build the internet size of knowledge base. So what's, what's your take, uh, how it's going to move forward versus big models out there uh, general availability versus in-house? Yeah, I think it, it, it also, it, it has changed a bit in different phases. So the first phase, uh, I'd, I'd say that's probably GPT-3 until a few months ago was a lot about power. So increasing size of the models and there are different papers out there showing how there is uh, a strong uh, correlation between the size of these models or so the parameters and the performance of the models. Um, I think let's call that the first uh, phase, the, 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 the power uh, phase. And now the second phase, um, I'd say, is also where people become more sensitive about different uh, different things. So, for example, one is the um, explainability. So suddenly, if you use it in enterprise context, you would want to understand from which training data a specific decision or feedback actually comes from then you also want to have trustworthiness. So you need to actually rely that the data is not used for retraining if you have sensitive data and so on. So this is what I mentioned before. Then the third one, uh, also new insight, is that actually through different kind of training and different kind of parameterization, you are able to improve the performance while not increasing the parameter size. So I think that has become also a new understanding very recently that it's not all about the size, but it's also about different factors than just size. Then number three is also, we see that uh, for most of these large language models companies, 
um, the major bottleneck is actually access to compute. So you look at into the value chain, it's just very difficult to come by uh, significant GPUs to do the training, but also the inferencing. And it's just very difficult. So I think that's a limiting factor. And throughout the last couple of months, a lot of focus has gone into efficiency. So how can we improve these models in terms of performance, in terms of, let's say, vertical use case specific performance? So through fine tuning, for example, while not improving their compute footprint. So I'd say this is now where suddenly we gain more insights, which are, let's say, in different dimensions, a bit more narrow and focused, but all of these insights lead to specific different directions of these models. And I think what is now starting with European AI Act, also Sam Altman traveling around the world um, in front of the Congress asking for more regulation. I think now that we understand the power, now that we understand the different avenues, the pros and cons, the advantages and disadvantages, uh, it becomes a lot of like, okay, what is actually possible and what is the development? We've seen that with the big uh, petition where many people signed, we should actually stop developing these models uh, for six months and so on. And at the same time, many different parties calling for proper regulation. So I think it is more or less zooming out a maturity development of generative AI. And I think it's just a very important development where also the companies that are out there on the field developing these models need to quickly adopt and find their specific value proposition depending on where on the dimensions they want to settle. Yeah. It's it's interesting. I have heard uh, both that uh, AI is overhyped and underhyped. And in a way, I agree with both. Yeah, it, it, and I think, and I think it really depends on the dimension that you want to pick. I think it's it's so incredibly powerful, and I try to stay on top of most of the relevant studies that come out. And I think only within the last six months, it has shown that we have significant, like not speaking about fifty percent increase, but speaking about 100, 200, 300 percent productivity gains only within such a short period of time. There are multiple studies forecasting what is the GDP impact and so on. So I think we we cannot even anticipate how big the impact on productivity actually will become. And I think if you ask me, every knowledge worker who does a job in front of a computer will be impacted in one form or another. And I think many, many jobs will drastically change. So I think that is really on the dimension of underhyped still. On the other hand side, in terms of overhyped, there are multiple dimensions where we also need to think about the risks, like, for example, hallucination. Everyone, like mostly everyone who has played around with these models, saw that at some point you get a response, which is just nonsense. And you still need humans in the loop to question the output and actually make sense. And I think also for those models, for at least the short and midterm, we will again see an augmented approach that is just very important. So I think in that sense, you could say, yes, it's completely overhyped because the results are not on human level yet. But I think uh, in, in, in multiple dire directions, we just need to take it very serious and figure out where these models work standalone already today and where we do need a human in the loop. So what's your take on, uh, on agents, baby AGI uh, and alike? We've played around with them a lot. Um, also internally, we've done quite some experiments. I think it's 
interesting and powerful while at the same time still very limited. So I think these these agents that you mentioned, uh, AutoGPT, Baby AGI, um, they work impressively for very simple tasks. But as soon there is some uncertainty within the task, it also becomes like surprisingly stupid. So they might get stuck in an infinite loop. So they might burn through compute uh, without an end. Uh, the answers might not be what you expected. And I think it just is very important to have a fallback uh, route out of the agents so that suddenly you uh, as a user get asked again. So build in something like if the model is unsure and needs additional information, just call the user for input or direction and so on. I think with these adjustments and they are coming and they are out there in different models already, they will become more powerful. And I think uh, we have now seen in the last couple of weeks, months, already the first company. So let's say in the cyber security space, for example, if you look for different kinds of cyber threats, looking through that and working through these mostly deterministic tree-based decision models to identify if it's actually a threat or not, it can be quite useful and can automate a lot of the repetitive tasks. So I think right now it's, I'd call it rather an experiment than something that delivers actual value. But if it actually works, you can even accelerate and you said that in the beginning with ChatGPT, you get this feedback loops, you collect data like very fast. I think with these agents, you can even increase the pace of collecting feedback data and training models to improve the accuracy. So I think it's just an advancement in one direction within the generative AI sector, but it's still at, at an experimentation stage where we need to understand what are the drawbacks, how do we need to adjust them to actually deliver proper value in a business context. Yeah, that's what I have also heard that, uh, well, the demos look cool for agents, but when you start to play, it, it goes off rail pretty fast. But I, I think uh, React uh, paper, the same as attention is all you need is a pretty powerful idea. Yeah. Uh, so we have looked from for this uh, from the perspective of VC. How do you think how how this whole data-driven investing approach changes the way how startups raise money? It's actually it's actually a question I've I've asked myself a lot. Um, I think also on the founder side. So also looking beyond the raising, I'd say through these generative AI approaches, companies will be in a position to do some trial and error and find product market fit significantly cheaper. So you don't need to hire an expert of army of developers and so on with novel tools, no code, low code, copilot alike tools, which essentially can help you to set up uh, your software, build a simple product, do marketing campaigns, without any full-time experts in the company. So I think it will be like founders will be able to find or don't find product market fit with significantly less money. That's number one. To your question on the fundraising side, I think, uh, and I, I just shared something a few days ago that founders um, actually, or there was a study, one step back, there was a study which has shown that um, AI generated pitch decks significantly stronger, like 2x stronger, convince investors to actually um, uh, dive deeper into a company. So I think a pitch deck 
is one part of a fundraising process that is really top of funnel to actually gauge interest for investors and check their hard and soft criteria. And I think there are multiple other things in terms of putting together documentation, answering questions. So every founder knows who has done a fundraising process. There are multiple investor questions. Uh, some of them overlap, some of them are completely different and so on. And answering them in written and slides just takes significant amount of time. And I think this can also be automated through these generative AI models. And forecasting that into the future, we will see multiple levels on the founder side to become more productive. I think actually all of this documentation from pitch decks to Excel files to Q&A documents and so on, are just a form of communication, a form that is very efficient in the beginning. So a pitch deck is one to many. One founder puts together a deck and can communicate a message to multiple parties without ever speaking to them. So they can select if it doesn't make sense to do an introduction call and actually meet the founders. And in my perspective, all of that is just an intermediate step between communication of player A and player B. And eventually through these data-driven approaches, we would be able by just uh, allowing to access data through an API, for example, to make an informed decision without even a pitch deck, without even an Excel file sending back and forth. So we don't need to play this, let's say, document ping pong back and forth to figure out if there is an eventual fit. Today, we try to do that through publicly available data, collecting all of this data, figuring out one way if there is a fit, if we like the company, but I would assume that uh, the more founders uh, progress now from, let's say, uh, AI-supported uh, uh, pitch decks, AI-supported uh, Q&A, and so on, to eventually, okay, we do have all of the data in our systems, and we can just uh, allow a unified API, for example, someone to access the systems, and then can figure out if there is a fit, that eventually we can get rid of all of the intermediary steps, and founders and VCs can quickly figure out if there is a fit without even ever exchanging documents. So that is my long-term understanding of a hyper-efficient investor-founder communication to figure out if there is a fit. And then eventually we can actually focus on what really matters, which is the relationship to the founders, assessing the soft factors that are, even though there are different kind of experiments out there today, it's very difficult to, to quantify today. So to sit down with the founder, see the fire in her eyes, does she really want to, to build like a cutting edge disruptive company? This is sometimes just very difficult. I like the term uh, document ping pong <laughs> a lot. <laughs> I actually looked at, um, I looked at um, also at the research about the pitch decks. And uh, we previously, I, I think with Mike, uh, we spoke that pitch deck actually is, Mike from Moonfire, we spoke about that pitch deck is actually human to human interaction. Mm -hmm. And now at Star Watcher, we have built pitch deck analyzer where I see that actually the more text is in the deck, the more automatically we can get out the data. And then it's like, why do we need human then? It's just like human gives the framework what they want to understand. And then it's just passing the information. So just give me the link to the data room. <laughs> That's it. This is exactly what I'm referring to. Like founders sit down yeah. and they spend weeks and months putting all of these data in a thoughtful way together into a deck, arranging them and so on. 
And then on the other side, you have these C's sitting there to parse these decks and try to get this unstructured data again into a structured data format and then make sense of the data. So it's essentially like founder putting data in an unstructured way into a pitch deck to make like a nice story and visual and so on. And by the way, I'm not saying that there won't be any pitch decks anymore. I think pitch decks are also a nice baseline to tell a story or something. Yes, so it can exactly. be very useful, but at the same time as a format of conveying information, it's just not the most efficient. Yeah. So I think in terms of finding evidence for an initial fit, there will be significantly more efficient ways without putting data into a nice pitch deck and so on. It's it's basically, it seems that the future is like startups writing down their thesis and investors writing down their thesis and then there's the, the magic. Yeah, exactly. Some, something like that in, in a simplified way and you can obviously uh, go deeper into, into every direction, but uh, this is this is what I, what I do understand. And in best case, you don't even need to write it down. You can extract that also from publicly and internal uh, information. But this is really yeah. how I envision the, the future. Uh, speaking about timing, I don't think we will see something like that anytime soon. Thankfully, through through these uh, large language models, generative AI more generally, we have seen a massive acceleration and also like increasing interest by more traditional VCs to adopt such novel technologies. But I think it will still take significant time, also given the long feedback cycles in VC, until we have actual proof that it makes VCs more efficient, more effective, more inclusive. That's a good question. It, the, the VC feedback loops partially are uh, connected to how VC industry works. And maybe the whole data-driven approach changes also how the industry works. More rolling funds and, uh, and alike where... I hope so. I think we see actually lots of innovation in the VC industry, like with micro VC funds, we see lots of specialization. While in the past, uh, partners today have done a fintech investment, tomorrow a deep tech, and the other day, uh, the enterprise software investment. We also see across the partnerships with sub teams within uh, bigger firms, also more specialization, so data-driven approaches. We have seen quite a bit, and I think we will also see a mix of these different innovations within the VC ecosystem. But one thing for me is just very clear. There's no reason why VC should not be data-driven. So for me, it's just very similar to the hedge fund industries in, in, in the 1980s or 1990s. You need to do an upfront investment, build up a proper team, invest into resources, into tool stack. And this is an upfront investment which might take five, six, seven, eight years to actually pay back. But once this feedback loop is closed, I think it will be very difficult for those who have not done the initial upfront investment to actually pick up again. So uh, let's go really practical. Let's say I'm a listener to this uh, great podcast. What would be your like, okay, uh, we are traditional VC firm and we would like to go into uh, data-driven. What would be some couple of first steps we should do? Like firstly, I would definitely do my research. So there's quite a bit of valuable content out there. And uh, we at Early Bird, we, we were unfortunately not be able to uh, benefit because there was no data, no information, no people out there actually sharing their perspective. So we have we needed to pay lots of uh, money and, and uh, to, to, to learn our lessons by trial and error. So this is number one, do your research. Number two, understand what you want to get out of it. So for me, it's always like you can only improve what you can measure. So we actually sat down and tried to measure everything. So we met 
our actual deal coverage. We uh, measure our miss rates, our hit rates across geographies, across industries. We measure our ability to prioritize the right opportunities. So we have done lots of stuff to actually measure. So I'd say first step, research. Second step, measure. Measure the status quo. Figure out where you need to improve. Do you need to improve on the coverage? Uh, is your NPS low in the portfolio value creation? Uh, do you have a bad ability to prioritize the right opportunities? Like you've seen them, but then you didn't prioritize them and suddenly another VC snapped the opportunity away. So you need to just understand where are the strengths and weaknesses of your own firm. And secondly, you also need to understand what is the focus. Like, do you focus on Europe? Do you focus globally? Do you focus on pre-seed stages? Do you focus on growth opportunities and so on? And once you've done your research, you measure the status quo and know where you want to go. You can really sit down and decide, okay, do we, like how much resources do we have available in terms of management fee, which is oftentimes directly correlated to the VC fund size. So the bigger the fund, the more management fee, the more capabilities to also build up a dedicated team. I personally just made the experience from doing, like I'm an investor, I spent most of my time on the investment side and I just learned how difficult it is to just do it on a side do proper things. So it's easy to build an MVP that was usable by me through code, but it was difficult to actually build an application that is used by the investment team on a daily basis and actually changes our processes. To do that, in my perspective, and build like not siloed solution because you can you can buy off-the-shelf solutions to get new uh, new startup leads, to get more enriched data and so on. You can buy like hundreds of tools out there, but the problem is it's very siloed data. And uh, for me personally, you need to have it in one place, have it actionable, have it like merged together in a nice way and have it actually be used by the investment professionals. And to do that, in my perspective, you need to, need to dedicate an engineering team. There are different approaches. If you're a smaller fund, a single GP and so on, this looks completely different. But if you're, let's say in your example, a traditional also bigger firm, um, in my perspective, it doesn't make sense to hire at least one full-time engineer to, to, to focus on this project. And once you've done that, you need to be very smart about buy versus build. So some solutions are out there, like you don't need to build the next uh, scraper for X if the data is publicly available. You don't need to build the next aggregator to collect company information because there are Crunchbase, DRoom, Pitchbook, CB Insights and so on out there. Like be smart on how you can leverage and integrate this data, find the white spots and then find smart ways of just fixing these white spots. So. Overall, be very smart about buy versus build and then think about your existing processes, how you want to change them and where to approach it with the right tools. So that would be like in a, in a bit more generic way, how I would approach it. And then um, I think uh, it will become the very nitty gritty stuff. So if we speak about sourcing, I would have hundreds of different answers how you should think about sourcing in terms of, I don't know, scraping, proxy service and so on. If you think then about uh, merging these entities together. So entity matching is a big challenge, inter and infra entity matching, removing duplicates and so on. So like the devil is in the details, but this is how I will approach it in five steps on a higher level. Great. Thank you. That was uh, nice. I would say uh, point five is uh, read the article from uh, Andre about augmented VC. I think that gives <laughs> a really good framework. That gives a really good framework uh, how to think about it. So uh, in conclusion, what are some uh, sources you are following online besides your own newsletter, which is really valuable and people should sign up? Thank you. Um, I actually, I, I read quite a bit. 
So I think I always, uh, throughout my, my research PhD time, uh, tended to read both academic papers, but at the same time also read a lot, let's say, in, 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 in uh, broader media. So everything like a different kind of substacks, different kind of medium articles. I listen a lot to different uh, podcasts, but also just try to speak to people. So whenever I see something interesting, I actually reach out because the worst thing that can happen is they tell me they don't have time. And this is also completely fine. But I just try to reach out to people who might be a bit ahead in the journey and, and get in touch with them and have a well-prepared um, conversation to get out what I'm actually looking for. So this is this is like my general mix of information. And then uh, specifically in the data-driven disease space, I actually, uh, in addition to my weekly episodes that are coming out at, as deep dives, um, every month, uh, I provide a monthly wrap up where I also dive into different reads, other resources and so on to just put in whatever I see. And funny enough, many people reach out to me like, did you look at this, uh, check out this and so on. So actually through our community, through different Slack groups and so on, I get quite some relevant content and feel that I have a like, healthy mix of the availability of content and also my ability to actually read it and make sense of it. So in the AI space, for example, more generally, that's that's very difficult right now because there is just so much out there to read from studies to different people writing newsletters about it and so on. And the pace of innovation versus my ability to, to keep track of that. So you need to become a bit more selective. Whereas I feel in the data-driven VC space, there is no saturation yet. I think there is still significant room for people to put out their thoughts and uh, just exchange with with each other to make our industry as a whole more efficient, more effective, more inclusive. Yeah, I totally agree on uh, reaching out to people. That has been my experience uh, when I started my data-driven VC journey. Just find some people, reach out to them and uh, have a chat because Throughout the chat, uh, the good old chat actually is really efficient way how to exchange information. I mean, funny enough, this is also how we got in touch, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Ago, but this is how we really got in touch. So I think like many people complain it's difficult to get an exchange and so on. Yes, it's difficult. Like if you don't put out your own thoughts, why would people know that you're interested in something? So either reach out or start putting out your own thoughts might not be right, might not be uh, what other people think, but this is how you start a conversation. And I think my most important point was uh, to put out some content because that started the conversation for me and had, le had led to the community uh, that DataBrim VC has grown to today. Great. Thank you, Andre. That's a super nice way how to end this conversation. Thank you so much, Ernest. Really enjoyed the talk. I hope you liked this episode. Let me know what you think and whom should I talk next. Subscribe until the next time.